The following recording may or may not include instances of words being said that the FCC would find me for if their long arm could ever reach. It's Thursday, February 13th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Michael Bloomberg, oh, what'd he say now? Well, not now, but in 2008, in fact, 10 days after Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were taken over by the federal government, just two days after Lehman went bankrupt. Back then, the president of Georgetown University was on stage with New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg and asked him, how did this happen? How did this financial crisis happen? A lot of people were asking Bloomberg that back then. He was America's most high-profile politician with a background in finance. The Obama administration would soon call on Bloomberg for advice. In fact, the Obama candidacy did too, as did the McCain candidacy. Here was how Bloomberg answered the question about the complex and varied causes of the financial crisis. Redlining, if you remember, was the term. And that's it. That's all he said. He said that. That's it. He said redlining. That's why there was a crisis. Wait, wait, that's not what he said. Even though Anad Girid Hardas, who is a noted progressive thinker and activist, described Bloomberg's answer as, Mike Bloomberg describes redlining as a rational and prudent tactic. I don't think he did. It helps to listen to more of the answer than just that one short clip. I, I would say it probably all started back uh, when... There was a lot of pressure on banks to make loans to everyone. Um, redlining, if you remember, was the term where banks took whole neighborhoods and said, uh, people in these neighborhoods are poor, they're not going to be able to pay off their mortgages, tell them your salesmen don't go into those areas. And then Congress got involved, as local elected officials as well, and said, oh, that's not fair, these people should be able to get credit. And once you started pushing in that direction, banks started making more and more loans where the credit of the person buying the house wasn't as good as you would like. Now, it's not so bad when the market for houses keeps going up because... I'll stop there to point out that Bloomberg never defends redlining as rational or prudent. I'm not cutting anything out about what he said about redlining. He said that when redlining was in place, there was no market for mortgages as a monetizable financial instrument with high risks and high yields. It was an eight-minute answer, and he talked about that specifically. Some people want uh, to buy a, a group of mortgages, but they want the, a group of mortgages that uh, have low return but very low risk. Other people are more uh, willing to take risk. They say, I want more risk, and I don't mind if there's more volatility. And so the bankers started taking the different components of a mortgage and, and the different types of mortgages and packaging them in innovative ways, for example. Now, one man's innovative is another man's complex and dangerous, but Bloomberg acknowledged that too. Wall Street got into the position where they created so many sophisticated products. My theory is that most people couldn't understand them, people that worked in the firms. I don't know. Correct. Now it's not an especially novel analysis, but a couple days after Lehman collapsed, it was a useful and helpful perspective, especially from a person with Bloomberg standing and expertise. A full seven minutes into his answer, he said this. Our leadership is not willing to tell us that there is a cost 
Congress and the President, and not just one administration, not just one side of the aisle, but both, uh, we keep going and saying we want to have it and we don't want to pay for it. And you can't go on forever not addressing the key issues in this country of health care and immigration and uh, who's going to pay for Social Security and uh, public education and guns in the streets and greening our planet and uh, this enormous deficit that the federal government keeps uh, running up. And then there's going to be some people very badly hurt. There's going to be some municipalities. Now. From all that, I do not get that Bloomberg, quote, blamed the financial crisis on redlining. I get that Bloomberg laid out a fairly detailed analysis of the financial crisis with the jumping off point that changes in the way mortgages were given, the way mortgages went from a boring, safe investment that only the bank could make a little money on over 30 years to this much more volatile investment. That's the thing that went wrong. Blame, it's one of those words like evidence. It means a little bit of the thing, but it also means all of the thing, like a sand castle or a grain of sand. Another way to put this, if I wanted to be fair to Bloomberg, but also fair to you, is that the disconnect between did he blame it all? Did he blame some? It is a classic case of confusion between the necessary and the, and the sufficient. Bloomberg is definitely saying that the loosening of lending standards was a necessary component for what came next. But he never says it was a sufficient component. And he never said if it was a good thing or a bad thing, though you would hope that a politician would say it's a bad thing. An analogy I thought of is to say all these cases of head trauma in the NFL, that could be blamed on Teddy Roosevelt. Because Teddy Roosevelt saw that football was dangerous, founded the NCAA, made it a bit safer, Cut to today, we have helmets, we have head trauma. But again, Bloomberg should have characterized redlining as a bad thing. Most politicians who understand emotions and their audience would do that. He didn't do that. I think with a little phrase like redlining, which of course is a bad thing, and then he could go on, we wouldn't even be talking about and obsessing over this clip. For the record, his description of the financial crisis wasn't great, It blames government more than I think the evidence shows that it should. Elizabeth Warren describes the causes of the financial crisis with more empathy than Bloomberg, but also, I think, with more accuracy than in that clip right there. But no, I do not think Mike Bloomberg, quote, blamed the financial crisis on the end of redlining, full stop. There's a lot of nuance missing from that statement, nuance that Bloomberg himself rebuts, in his full statement, which I played some of, and also his full political career. On the show today, you won't believe what the boys of Chapo Trap House say about Pete Buttigieg. Oh, it's a lot worse than fiddling with baguette prices. You won't believe it, and I'm really advising you don't believe it. But first, Leon Nafak, the original host of Slow Burn, is off doing Fiasco, his podcast about big presidential crises, They just might have something to say about the crises of today. He's in this current season talking about Iran. Does that grab you? It should. How about the Contras, Nicaraguan guerrillas? That's cool, right? Why is it when I put them together in the phrase Iran-Contra affair, the Churrasco loses some of its sizzle? Because, as Leon's new podcast shows, it really shouldn't. My favorite historical podcast host, I'd say close to my favorite podcast host in history, Leon Nafak is up next. Thank mm-hmm. you.
There are over 90,000 people missing at any time, and over half a million are reported missing every year. And that's just in the United States. I'm Mike Morford. And I'm Jess Betancourt. And in our podcast, Missing Persons, we discuss cases of people who have gone missing under mysterious circumstances. And we're joined in each episode by guests who are either related to the missing person, investigating their disappearance, or advocating for answers in the case. Missing Persons is available everywhere you listen to podcasts, and there are dozens of episodes to binge on right now. Subscribe today so you don't miss an episode. Leon Nafak is the founding host of Slow Burn. His first two seasons on Nixon and Clinton were, I don't know, just about the two greatest podcast seasons of narrative (laughs) journalism ever. He has since taken his uh, shop. It's not just him. It's his whole crew of historical excavators. He's taken them to Luminary, where he's doing fiasco. Last season was about, was it a season or a seasonette, would you say? It was a season. It was was six episodes. It was shorter than we usually get. Right. That was Bush Gore. And now I'm so excited because I am a geek, he is doing the Iran-Contra affair. And where these scandals hit based on how old you are is very determinative of your relationship to him. And I'm going to ask Leon about that. And it's fantastic. Leon Nafak, welcome back to The Gist. Thanks, Mike. How, very happy to be here. How old a gentleman are you, Leon? <laughs> 34. Okay. So this means Clinton was something you and your dad would debate, uh-huh. right? Bush Gore was something you were pretty much a young adult for. And so you definitely remember. And Nixon was something literally before your time. Mm -hmm. So this was, do you have any memory of the Iran-Contra affair took place in like 83, 84? Yeah, I I was just being born Uh in April of 85, which is right Ah. before all this really got started. Uh, 85, 86 is really where the action is. So it's a little bit more difficult, especially when compared to the Lewinsky affair or um, Bush Gore. It's not like those weren't complicated, but there is a central question, a one central thing, whereas Iran-Contra has like two polarities of scandal that also interact to form yet a third scandal. Exactly. That's difficult. From like a narrative From what you have to do to orient the audience. Yeah, well, so in terms of orienting the audience, like, our first question was, what can we consider common knowledge about Iran-Contra? It's a question we asked ourselves about Watergate, about, about right. the Clinton impeachment. You know, obviously, everyone's different. You're hopefully getting a, a wide enough audience that there's people who are young, people who are older, mm-hmm. people who are there, people who, you know, have read about it, even though they don't remember it. People know very little about Iran-Contra. I'm 34, people in my age group we were just being born as this happened. Not only did it make not make an impact on us at the time, obviously, but more to the point, didn't get like passed down to us over the course of our education and, and adolescence and adulthood or whatever. It just didn't sort of last as a cultural touchstone. It didn't somehow find a permanent place in our you know collective consciousness. Yeah, and I'm gonna lay on you a couple theories as to why I think oh, why. Good. But first, I need let's, some. yes, let's lay out <laughs> what it was. The Iran part was. The Ayatollah takes control of Iran. The state becomes the Islamic Republic of Iran. The hostages are taken. The hostages are freed, not because of Reagan, but freed on the day he's inaugurated. He gets credit for them. It was an embarrassment to Carter. That's where Reagan comes into play. Iran's in a war against Iraq. A bunch of Iranian surrogates are taking hostages across the Middle East. Iran is literally on the watch list of terrorism. And yet someone comes to the administration saying, I got a deal for you. Give us some weapons for our war with Iraq and we'll free some of the hostages. So tracking like the the chain of events that led to 
President Reagan getting this briefing or being told about this possibility is quite hard. We call it a bizarre daisy chain in the show. And we we don't dwell on it super long because it doesn't ultimately matter that much, like exactly who told whom and then mm-hmm. which meeting happened on which day. But the long and short of it is there were people in Israel who had been dealing with people in Iran whom the Israelis believed to be moderates or pragmatists, people who didn't see eye to eye with the Ayatollah, people who wanted a better relationship with the West. And they had a guy, an Iranian guy, who was sort of presenting himself to them as the intermediary, the broker, who says, look, I got these friends or, or associates in Iran who I'm close to. They're moderate. They don't want death to America. You right. know, and you should deal with them. And the Israelis trusted this guy. His name was Manucher Gorbanifar. And Gorbanifar, we describe him as like an international fixer. He could get two parties into a room, even though the two parties maybe don't trust each other. Right. And so at some point, an Israeli official tells his friend and associate in the National Security Council, Bud McFarlane, about this connection he has, Manucher Garbanifar, who can connect Americans in the government to these moderates in Iran. And like, again, the the details are a little bit murky. There's some conflicting accounts about what was exactly told to whom, when, but it becomes clear that in order to engage this channel, this group of moderates in Iran, we needed to sell them some amount of uh, weaponry, yes, missiles. Uh, if people are listening and they could weigh in good idea, bad idea, here's how it goes down. A hundred or so missiles are shipped. Yes. Yes, and it really happens. They really get the missiles, and then the word comes back. We Actually, need, we need more missiles. We need more. We need four times as many missiles, and at that point, I'd have been out. If I was anyone who was in, I said, okay, you beat us for the hundred missiles. No. Yep. No from now on. Not only do they ask for more missiles, yeah. this is all, when I say they, I mean Gorbanifar. So he says, yes, we need 400 more. Not only that, we actually can't bring about the release of all seven hostages that we know of being held in Beirut. We can only probably do one. Yeah. You guys have to figure out amongst yourselves which one you want it to be. Right. And the one they ask for is the former CIA agent, William Buckley, who's too sick to actually be given back. So they get who? Well, so it turned out he had been dead for a while. He'd had what they believed to be a heart attack uh, at some point, even before the missiles were sent. They they instead a guy named Benjamin Weir, who was a reverend who lived in Beirut. You interview his son. Yeah, we interviewed his son. What's amazing about Reverend Weir being the hostage they gave back, there were other people they could have released. They chose Weir, and I think some in the administration suspected that it was because Weir's politics were kind of... He had an appreciation for the plight of his captors. He and his Mm -hmm. wife both had lived a long time in the Middle East. They identified, I think, with people there, and they understood American policy in the Middle East to be a destructive force. In fact, Weir's wife met with Schultz, the Secretary of State, to sort of get him involved in the quest to get her husband back. She kind of lectured him a little bit on like all the reasons why her husband's kidnappers like made some good points. Yeah, some of the people who were involved in this transaction in America referred to him as Reverend Weird. Oh wow, yeah. a clever play on words. <laughs> Stick it to the hostage. This is not all, but this is some of the Iran part of the Iran Contra affair. At the same time, you have a central Nicaraguan rebel group called the Contras, who the Reagan administration has identified as being like George Washington and the founding fathers of our country. And Mm -hmm. they want to get funding. The Republicans in Washington want to fund these Contras, but literally- all the Republicans. Not all, but a significant number of them. Right. The isolationists don't really care. And some of the realists say, you know, it's not worth it and that they're terrible people. But anyway, Ronald Reagan did. 
it was against the law to do so. So how they went about funding the Contras takes up some pretty hilarious slash tragic aspects of that one episode with whining and dining old Republican ladies. Yes. Oliver North was in charge of the charm offensive. Indeed. So they basically they decided that Congress says we can't spend, you know, American money, like government money mm-hmm. on the Contras. Okay. A lot of the Reagan people that I've talked to believe that the law that you're referring to, the Boland Amendment, was narrowly enough tailored that it invited an end run. Yes. That it really, everyone understood what was going on. They just needed to make a show of it, so they passed this law. But it was understood that they left holes on purpose. You know? um, <laughs> Does Boland say that? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so this law is a real obstacle to Reagan's very strong-held desire to help these anti-communists in Nicaragua. And so what do they do is instead of taking U.S government money, they solicit donations from wealthy private donors in America, people who have been, you know, counted on to fund Republican political campaigns. You know, they show them a slideshow, they have them come in and meet the president, really make it worth their while. One lady asked for her name to be inscribed on a missile. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. They really kind of like sold them the the idea that the Contras were a coalition of freedom fighters and that we couldn't abandon them as Congress would have us do, just like we abandoned our allies in Vietnam when we pulled out, which is really what's behind a lot of this is like Oliver North, Reagan, like they hate that you know, we abandoned our brothers, our, you know, anti-communist allies. We can't let it happen again. And that's what they see happening in Nicaragua if we abandon the Contras. And they also, they, the United States government also hilariously founds this group to act as sort of the figurehead spokesman for the Contras, even though they have very little actual association with the Contras. Some of the people, some of the people, so you're referring to the seven people who would present a attractive image of the Contras because the Contras were understood to be made up of a lot of different factions, but among them were former National Guardsmen who had served under Somoza, who was this brutal right-wing dictator whom the U.S. supported until the end. And so a lot of his people, a lot of his guys with guns, yeah. you know... His goons. His, yeah, they continued to support him. Well, they wanted their power back. Right. And so these people, the Somocistas, made up a large percentage of the, of the Contra forces. And, you know, I think it was understood that that was not a winning brand, <laughs> start to use a contemporary term. And so they wanted to organize like the seven member public board of people who could plausibly say they weren't extremists, that they certainly weren't in favor of torture or atrocities. And, yeah. you know, so so the board, you know, as you say, it was supposed to be the face of this organization, but they, it's not like these were completely, you know, unaffiliated people. Okay. You know, they, they, they were, there some were some contra curious, some were contra adjacent, <laughs> if you will. And so we, we interviewed one of the members of the directorate um, who quit at, at a certain point because he felt disenchanted with it. He was a Nicaraguan guy who had moved to Miami and had gotten sort of interested in the, the political turmoil back home, didn't support the Sandinistas, thought they were too extreme. And so he got recruited by the CIA, he believes, to sort of serve as one of the seven. Yeah. And so then at a certain point, he, you know, he was roped into making apologies for the things the Contras were doing. He was, you know, called in the middle of the night to say, listen, you got to go on the radio and say that it was us that, you know, laid those bombs in the Nicaraguan harbor because we can't let anyone know that it was anything to do with the CIA. Yeah. Which, of course, it was. And that eventually came out. Yes. It came out during a debate, didn't it? It, well, it came out before that, but, it, but yes, it was brought up during the, yes. during the debate. So the Arms for Hostages, its own scandal, if people were to find out about it, then it becomes Arms for Money. Is that what happens? Well, I mean, there was always money. I think what you're referring to, I think, is that there, was, there were profits being made yeah. off the arms sales. 
And those profits at a certain point started being funneled by Oliver North and some of his associates into the Contra War. And this is the hyphen or the end dash. Uh, I have a friend who's very upset with me for referring to it as a hyphen. Uh-huh. He's... That's why it's not a well-known scandal. <laughs> the hyphen over M dash. N dash, not M dash. N dash. N dash, the yeah. short one. Oh, God. Anyway, the hyphen or yeah. the dash is the money, right? Yeah. The, the thing that connects these two otherwise unrelated operations, well, one thing is that they're, they're being run by the same people, which makes it possible for the money to intermingle to then have profits from the arms sales being used to buy guns for the Contras. Yeah. Why don't they just use all their crack profits that the CIA made? <laughs> no, but this is true. The people who study the CIA or study secret organizations, if they want to do surreptitiously, technically illegal things, you have to be funded somehow. And that's usually via illegal funding methods. So well, like, there's a chronicle history of the CIA working with, say, mafia factions because they needed the money for other things. Well, there was a the way to get covert operations you know, funded and approved and make them legal. Yeah. And it was, there's a law that says that a, a president can order a covert action as long as he signs a piece of paper called a presidential finding mm-hmm. in advance and explains what it is, what the rationale is, and commits to briefing Congress on it. Like not all of Congress, but like yeah. select, you know. The Intel Committee. Yeah. yeah. And there was a finding for CIA involvement in Nicaragua. And then the Bolin Amendment passed and the CIA could no longer be serving that purpose. With regard to the arms sales, another covert operation, one of the big problems that the Reagan administration faced once everything started coming out was the first two arms shipments that they engaged the Iranians on were not covered by presidential finding. There was a finding signed after the fact, which the Reagan folks wanted to say was retroactive. Mm -hmm. But in any event... There was no briefing of Congress. You know, yes, he signed the piece of paper, but I would say like the important part of the law would be that there is oversight from Congress, which they declined to do on the theory that, well, it says in a timely manner. You know, who's to say timely means before it happens? Who's to say it means, you know, a week as opposed to a year? So that was that was sort of uh, to answer your question, like, sure, the covert operations have to be secret. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean they need to be funded illegally. Yeah. Leon Afak is the host of Fiasco, the second season of which is available on that luminary service. It's about the Iran-Contra affair. Thank you so much, Leon. Thanks, Mike. We've all seen the headlines in the news of how someone lost their life in an act of cold-blooded murder. And while it's sad and grabs your attention, most people go on with their day without giving it another thought. But have you ever stopped to think about the life of the person at the center of the news story? They were more than just a headline or a statistic. They were someone's loved one or friend. I'm Mike Morford, and my podcast, The Murder of My Family, dives into some of those stories to help listeners get to know the person who was lost and how their death affected those closest to them. Listen to The Murder of My Family everywhere you listen to podcasts. There are well over 100 episodes to binge on now. And now the spiel. If you don't know Chapo, the podcast, not the drug lord, it's a phenomenon. It's called Chapo Trap House. It's currently the 16th ranked news podcast in iTunes, which is three ahead of the BBC. Unfortunately, five behind the verdict with Ted Cruz. Guilty. The Chapo Trap House guys have written a New York Times bestseller. They each have over 100,000 followers on Twitter. And this is the big one. They've been on the gist, begging for Pedialyte after a night of hard drinking. Their producer, Chris, is an old Slate employee who I like very much. I met the four main Chapo guys at the Iowa State Fair. They were funny. I could not take them up on their offer of a night of hard drinking. I listen to the show because I like hearing their good arguments from a strong socialist point of view. They also present the very harshest critiques 
of more moderate politicians than Bernie Sanders, which is to say, I think every other politician in America. They are funny and their politics are really influential. As ardent Bernie supporters, they are scathing in their attacks on his rivals. They look at Elizabeth Warren like a Jew looks at a Jew for Jesus. Now, if you don't know this little spat, you might say, well, isn't that almost a Jew? But to an actual Jew, Jews for Jesus are the worst. Every once in a while, actually pretty frequently, Chapo goes full conspiracy mode. And sometimes it's embarrassing. And other times, like this recent show, it's bordering on the dangerous. At the very least, it's an afactual disregard for documentable truth, and it shows that the far left is every bit as eager to get high off the paint fumes of innuendo and suggestion. In their last posted show, Chapo went full bore into an area they've tiptoed around in the past. The notion that Pete Buttigieg is an agent for the CIA. So before they launch into their full diatribe, complete with knowing winks and the technique of paralysis, which is, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, they pander a little bit to the live crowd in New Hampshire by putting down Iowa, and then they analyze the results from Iowa inaccurately as it happens. Here's Will. We did prevail in Iowa. Bernie won the Iowa caucus decisively. We are not bullshitting you. We are not trolling you. We are not saying that to just hype up confidence and support. We are telling you objectively, Bernie Sanders won the Iowa caucus decisively. Yes. Then they buttress their incorrect assertion that Bernie won the Iowa caucuses decisively with a quasi-conspiracy theory and a built-in escape clause. And that foreshadows what's to come next. But first, the guys of Chapo engage in a bit of fun, funny, funny stuff. Pete Buttigieg corny one-liners. There are two types of Peteisms. There's one that's like almost like a joke if an AI told a joke. <laughs> and that is when Pete says things like, well, the community that I'm from, uh, we care less about the NASDAQ and more about building a coat rack. Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. It will be something like, something resembling like, um, well, it gets worse, believe me. <laughs> Where I'm from, we care less about the school's Montessori and more about raising our son, Corey. <laughs> and that's like, that's like so almost like the least evil type of Petism because it's like the robot wants to be part of humanity, kind of. And there's like a, a spiritual yearning and you wish you could update his... To know the human. To love right. the human. You wish you could update his uh, NVIDIA settings to get that done and we wouldn't have to go through this whole thing. It's sad because you know he kind of feels pain. Oh, yeah, he definitely does. There's pain in that little Arthur fist he makes. There's pain. <laughs> but That was Felix. That clip is Trap House at its most appealing. It's funny, smart, and sharp. They're mocking a rival for his style and his pretension. Clearly satire. But this next part, where they talk about Pete Buttigieg being in the CIA, was not satire. So when you begin to assemble these facts or like go down these various rabbit holes or look at the bigger picture, you will never, ever get, and this is what Tom O'Neill said to us that's very important, you will never, ever, ever get to a point of capital T journalistic truth that can be published in the New York Times. Oh, it's not New York Times truth. What with their strict definitions of things that are true. Then Virgil issued this disclaimer. Oh, and, and by the way, very, very quickly, anyone out there who's a, a reporter for New York Magazine, Politico, The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Washington Post, anything like that, uh, this is off the record, okay? So is it a joke? Is it not a joke? 
It is a joke because people laughed. And of course, you can't go off the record on a publicly available podcast. But it shows Chapo knows what they're doing. They understand the uses and purposes of propaganda. And they also know what they're about to do. In their extremely influential and popular podcast, they're about to smear Bernie Sanders' biggest rival to date with a batshit insane conspiracy theory. So here is Chapo member Matt Christman making the case that Pete Buttigieg, active CIA asset, he began by citing a 2008 New York Times op-ed that Buttigieg wrote about Somaliland, the enclave of Somalia that was seeking independence. At the exact same time that the U.S. government was making inroads to attempt to establish military bases there with the connivance of the local leadership, Pete Buttigieg and his friend from Harvard, his friend from Harvard, a guy whose name is, oh, good Lord, Nathaniel Myers is his name, a guy who works for USAID, the USAID International Development Organization, which has been for 40 years a known CIA front. USAID is actually the largest government-sponsored aid agency in the world. Half of all U.S. foreign aid flows through USAID. The guys continue to trace Buttigieg's career. Then he joins naval intelligence and goes to Afghanistan. The Navy, famously necessary to get intelligence in landlocked Afghanistan. The Navy's really good at mountains, actually. Yes, where he has admitted in his own books that he spent time in CIA safe houses. A guy who has a glowing portraits of this guy talk about how in his study he has maps of the mineral resources of Afghanistan normal. in his fucking house. He's a cartographer. Like a normal okay. guy. He's a cartography buff. He loves maps. He's a goddamn map nerd. So this is a guy whose entire career, before he becomes mayor, is pure intelligence. Absolutely. There is not a single thing he did, either with McKinsey or with the military, that does not indicate that he was doing, at the very least, like high-end grifting uh, McKinley shit, or at the worst, like Project Phoenix, like targeted assassinations. LGBTQ CIA. Exactly. <laughs> That's not my joke. That's someone else's joke, but, you know. Project Phoenix was a CIA-backed program during the Vietnam War that was credited, if you want to use that word, with killing tens of thousands of Viet Cong sympathizers, many, if not most of them, neutral civilians. Now, to be fair to Chapo, killing tens of thousands of innocent Vietnamese or a similar venture was at the upper bounds of what they say that Pete Buttigieg was doing right before being elected mayor of South Bend, Indiana. And they describe his mayorality this way. And then he, and then he becomes mayor of South Bend, where he becomes the most media savvy, most media connected guy in this pissant town of 100,000 people, where his job is basically just to ethnically cleanse the black people out of the neighborhood so they can be gentrified. By the way. But how did this small town mayor become a presidential candidate? Perhaps, I mean, the way I figured is that maybe you saw him like a lot of voters did, and said, ooh, I like this guy, I like what he has to say, I like how he says it, his temperament and his story. Perhaps if you didn't say that, you know someone who did, or find it plausible that this is a reason why a reasonable person might like Pete Buttigieg. No, you're wrong, it's not, it's CIA. So then he gets to run, and as I said, he's running against one of the biggest fields they've ever had, governors, senators, every 
half of them just trying to run the Obama playbook. All of them fall away, and he's the last one left. And he is the one that the media is willing to go to bat for and lie on behalf of after he stole Iowa. So at this point, I suppose it's incumbent upon me to deny being a member of Project Mockingbird. Mockingbird 2 catching fire. I guess that's the updated program. Though denying being in the employ of the CIA is exactly what someone in the employ of the CIA would say. Hmm. Well, putting aside this unfalsifiable premise, let us continue to do Langley's bidding as I play you more of the unhinged conspiratorial ramblings of the number one Bernie Sanders podcast in America, co-hosted by the New York Times bestselling authors and their pal, Amber A. Lee Frost. By the way, Frost was a contributor to the Columbia Journalism Review. She wrote uh, the ninth most popular article there last year. The tone in that article was tailored to the CJR audience, not CIA, CJR, Columbia Journalism Review. For the Chapo audience, Frost took a different tone, one that embraced conspiracy, but also told the true believers, fueled by the truths that were revealed, that they must not give away the game when trying to convince others to oppose Buttigieg. It is actually really important that we don't look crazy. Matt played it less close to the vest. Fucking Mayor Pete is at the nexus of every black op CIA fucking thing in the last 30 fucking years. So since he was eight. This is the point in their podcast where the hosts both embraced the depths of their theories and offered a fig leaf of deniability, using phrases like, you can believe all of this, you can believe none of it. The end result equals the same thing, which is that you need to know powerful forces oppose Bernie Sanders. They advise the audience on the best way to take this knowledge, this special knowledge that they imparted, and to use it when dealing with members of the public who might not be as informed as they are. And I remember early on on the show when we were making fun of Pete by calling him Agent Pete or saying he's a CIA op. And of course, I was half kidding then. Am I half kidding now? I will leave it to you, the audience, to judge for yourself. This is some Glenn Beck, Alex Jones, 9-11 truther type technique right there. So ask yourself, is the difference that those conspiracies are wrong and the Pete Buttigieg is a CIA cat's paw, right? Is that the difference? Or is the difference that Pete Buttigieg is working black ops theory, is that different from birtherism because one is in service of a bad outcome and the other fuels a righteous fire? I think it's a lot like birtherism in that the crazy private inaccurate theory really inspires the congregation and they know when they interact with the public, who don't think like they do, they know how to put on a more plausible public face. Oh, well, no matter what you think about that, you have to really be concerned with his executive overreach with the DACA program. But privately, they're going out there and saying this with such fervor because they know he was really born in Kenya. The Chapo guys do say a version of, hey, believe it or don't believe it, but they definitely think that it's important enough to put out in their podcast, which is listened to by 100 to 200,000 listeners, because they know that even if it's not true, if their fellow Sanders supporters believe it's true, then it's all to the good in their eyes. What I say is that a lie is a lie and propaganda is propaganda. And that's why it's useful for me to surface this horseshit so we could say that it's horseshit. If you want to say universal healthcare, that's a great idea. Just realize this. Okay, maybe it is. It's in a bag with horseshit. 
If universal health care and free college are the right goals, what does it say that we have to use horseshit as a means to achieve these goals? Does it say you can't have anything good unless you embrace insane fictions to get there? I'm trying to be fair to Bernie Sanders himself, the person, the candidate. He never said any of this. There's no evidence he believes it. Again, the part about there being no evidence, I think that's important. And also, every good leader has some bonkers followers or some followers who spout bonkers notions. But Bernie Sanders, the candidacy, is premised on a political revolution, the coming revolution. So if you throw in with him, maybe you should ask yourself how many of your fellow revolutionaries will be motivated by beliefs like this, by thinking like this, or even by tactics like pretending to believe theories like this or throwing lies out there just in case they inspire others who they can use to achieve what they say is a righteous goal. Anyway, that's the update about what's going on over there at Chapo. Thought you should know. And that's it for today's show. Priscilla Alabi is the associate producer of The Gist. She's working out the theory that Liz Warren is Mossad. Mossad to the core. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He knows Trump might be working with the Russians, but he thinks we dodged a bullet with John Kasich, who might be in the pocket of nefarious Slovenian factions. The Gist. I take you to 1988. Democratic nominee. Mike Dukakis loses to former CIA director George H.W. Bush. But now it can be revealed Dukakis was a sleeper agent of the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it gets worse because it wasn't the fish part. Umpru depru du Peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>